All right, good to see so many. Wasn't sure what to expect today, particularly with the big game. But then last night I was thrilled to see that they moved it to Monday. So um, no excuses for not being at church today, right? Yeah, perfect. But hopefully by now we got credibility with everybody, right? I mean, we finish on time. We're always done well under an hour. And we would have made that again today as well. But anyway, um, just thought I'd point that out. So as, as Cammie just read for us today, last week we looked at all that was involved in God's command to kids, that they were to obey their parents. And today we look at the other half of the relationship, what it is that parents are to do to raise their kids. And this is a challenging topic. I pointed that out last week. Um, It's not something that we take lightly. We know that families create so many challenges in our lives. They're great. We love them. But there's a tremendous amount of complicated family dynamics. There's no two families out there that are identical. There's no blueprint for how to run a family. So this call to obey parents, especially when they don't always treat us that well, it can create a lot of intense feelings within us. And we often see the fallout from it whenever we do counseling. So many people have suffered trauma at the hands of their parents. It's real, it hurts, and it's all the result of sin. And that's why we say so often that sin leaves scars. That's why it's so important that we pay attention. Because at the same time, we all need to learn obedience. It's paramount to our relationship with God, which is why Paul teaches that children are to obey their parents. And that's how they learn obedience. Now, before we turn our attention, though, to the parents, I want to remind us again of Paul's bigger argument here. Remember, it all starts out with being born again into a new life in Christ and how Paul calls us to imitate God by walking in love. And that is not something that comes naturally to us. It's something that we need help with, which is why Paul also says, be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Not even something that just happens to us. It's something that unfolds, as we say over and over, in the middle voice, where God is moving on us and we respond to all it is that he's doing in our hearts. And we basically have three ways that we've learned that we can interact with the Holy Spirit. First, we can choose to grieve him by living in unrepentant sin. There's a distance of sorts when that happens, and we don't see fruit ripening in our lives. Second, we can choose to quench him, where we reject his counsel or we ignore his teaching that we find in Scripture. Or third, we can be choose we can choose to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That's living a Spirit-filled life. And Paul is very careful to give us three examples of how we do this. By praising, by giving thanks, and by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And of course, those first two, we don't do them nearly often enough, but we know what they are and we know what they're all about. But that last one is all about relationships. And that's a significant challenge for us. And that's why Paul then goes into three main relationships that we spend a ton of time in our lives with, marriage, family, and work. And so it's so important, though, because we can dive into this and get too deep into the details and not see the bigger picture, which is this is how we live a spirit-filled life as parents and as children within our families. Okay, so let's briefly review what we saw last week since these two teachings are so closely connected. Paul's overarching main point was that children are to obey their parents, meaning they're to voluntarily respect the authority of their parents. Then Paul made three points that helped us better understand how it is that we can put this teaching into practice. First, we're to do it in the Lord. 
meaning we're to employ this teaching within God's design for His beloved children. So it doesn't matter how you feel about your parents. You're to obey them. But he also had this caveat in there. It's not blind obedience. For example, if parents direct a child to reject Jesus or to sin against him, children are not to obey that. But otherwise, to the greatest extent possible, it's God's design that children obey their parents. Second, Paul contends, for this is right. In other words, it's God's will that children obey their parents, especially since we're all born with this sinful bent toward rebellion. So children learning to honor and obey their parents is in step with God's will. It's even one of those Ten Commandments, which leads us to Paul's third point. This is the only one of those commandments that comes with a unique promise. When you honor your father and mother, God says things will go well with you and you will live long. And when you step back and consider this teaching in its totality, it makes so much sense because obedience is one of those fundamental components of living a new life in Christ. And it's first learned in the home. So that as children mature, they'll learn to obey their teachers so that we all develop to our full potential and then go out and subsequently obey our bosses. So we're productive members of society, obeying the laws of the nation being good citizens who make a difference in the lives of others. But most importantly, so that we'll learn to obey God, who is the ultimate authority in our life. It's what allows us to live in step with God's design, which is why this all makes sense, because things go well when we live according to the way God designed things for us. And then today, Paul turns our attention to the parents as he writes, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now the first thing that should strike all of us is that Paul starts this, in, in this particular instruction a little differently before. He just focuses on the fathers. Notice he moves from teaching children to honor their father and mother to now singling out the fathers. And when we dig into this, we find that's primarily a cultural artifact of the first century. Because when Paul wrote this, both Jews and Gentiles were under Roman authority. And there was this thing in Roman culture called patria potestas, which means the father's power or the authority that a father had over his household. Typically the way it worked in Roman society was that the mom nurtured children up until around the age of seven. And then the father took over all the training and the development of the child until around the age of 16, in which then a trusted member of the family or a relative or potentially a friend or somebody would sort of serve as this mentor and the child would come under this apprenticeship for a, a few years. But throughout the entirety of a child's life, the father retained full authority until the father died. Now within Jewish families, Fathers and mothers shared this responsibility throughout the upbringing of the child. So while Paul gives the cultural nod to the fathers here, and that's on a result of sort of the societal norms in the first century, it's generally agreed upon by theologians that this instruction very much applies to both parents, especially today when moms are often the only parental figure in many children's lives. Now, before we start tearing this text apart word by word like we typically do, 
it's important we consider one further aspect of patria potestas. This word means absolute authority, meaning fathers could legally raise their children however they wanted. Here is how a Greco-Roman author described it. The lawgiver of the Romans gave virtually full power to the father over his son, whether he thought proper to imprison him, to scourge him, to put him in chains, and keep him at work in the fields, or to put him to death. And this, even though the son were already engaged in public affairs, though he were numbered among the highest magistrates, and though he were celebrated for his zeal for the commonwealth. So this is the context in which Paul addresses this teaching here. Fathers had absolute authority. They could even condemn their adult children who had become productive members of society. So children were to be disciplined in order to teach them obedience as often as needed, regardless of their age. In fact, this approach to discipline was standard even among the Jewish culture. We find it in many classic Old Testament teachings, which I'm sure many of us in here have heard over the years. For example, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Or, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Or, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. So this captures the approach that even Jewish parents took toward disciplining their children. You really couldn't discipline them enough. It was good for them. You cross the line, you should expect the rod. But you can see how easily this approach could be taken to extremes. Now, some of the more senior folks in here are probably apt to have experienced this line of thinking firsthand. Even in my day, principals routinely used a paddle to administer discipline. You could hear it all the way down the hall, and people would usually just say, well, that was a good one, right? <laughs> but you didn't even give it a second thought. Now, this is not an argument for or against corporal punishment. This is just a statement of fact about the nature of how discipline has been applied over the years. So perhaps a more helpful way to think about this issue of discipline is along this continuum of sorts, where at the one end, we have what I would call harsh discipline, and at the other end, more gentle discipline. And while from today's perspective, discipline back in the day was probably more adequately described as harsh, the pendulum has clearly shifted to the other side, where it's far more gentle now. For example, corporal punishment in public schools is outlawed in almost all states now. And a parent spanking a child, especially in public, is most likely going to lead to a visit by social services at some point. So many people bristle at any form of aggressive actions or language toward a child. And what Paul is going to show us is that God doesn't want us operating at either end of the spectrum. Back in the day, harsh discipline, which could even lead to death, it wasn't part of God's design especially when it was done out of a spirit of anger about any number of things that were unrelated to the child's behavior. And today, where it's become gentle to the point where it's actually probably not even defined as discipline at all, because we just don't want our kids to experience any pain or suffering, that also 
isn't part of God's design. Because children won't learn right from wrong. They won't learn accountability or that there's consequences for things. And when we look around our culture today, we see the effects of operating at both of those extremes. So there is a balance here. There's a middle ground, and that's what Paul wants us to see. And since it was the prevailing practice of the day, Paul starts on his teaching at the harsh end of things. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. In other words, don't be so harsh in your child-rearing that you incite your children to wrath. Now look, we all know parenting is probably one of the greatest challenges we'll ever face in life. Our kids, they don't come with an instruction manual, and every single child is completely unique and different all on their own. So all parents no doubt have regrets about the mistakes that they've made in parenting. I know I have my share. And when you look at the pressure that's placed on parents, it's so easy to let the stress of work, the weight of life, the burden of bills, keeping up with all those household chores, caring for extended family, the challenges of marriage, all of that can lead to shaping how we interact with our children, especially on those days when they also make life hard for us. But children are not to be an outlet for our frustrations. And even if we aren't physically cruel, or since we're describing the way discipline unfolds in 2024 as more gentler, we still often can achieve that same effect, but in more subtle ways, by the use of those vicious words, like calling our kids idiots, or even worse, shooting those condemning looks at them, that passive-aggressive behavior that we engage in, or by driving our children into the ground, pushing them to be successful at all costs, having this zero-defect mentality, micromanaging every aspect of their life. And this goes on well into adulthood, parents knowing every single grade a child receives, even in college, often displaying their disappointment or frustration with even the slightest of perceived failings. It absolutely blows my mind how many of my own friends and peers who have their kids in college right now, when I have conversations, I ask them about their kids, they'll say, oh, you know, so-and-so got to be on this problem set. And he got 100% on that. I'm like, how do you know these things? The kids in college, for crying out loud. But this is where we have become as a culture. We have our hands in everything. And even though this isn't physical abuse, it can cause every bit as much damage when we do this. As parents, we must never become overbearing in this sense. We must not forget the duty of encouragement. Because every single time we engage with our children, we paint an image on the canvas of their hearts. And we got to paint good images. That doesn't mean gentle images. That doesn't mean harsh. It means good images. Those images that help them see what it is that God desires for them to see in this issue of obedience. And the unbelievable blessings that come when we live in that particular world of obedience. And that's why as parents, it's our encouragement to paint those images well. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, his father was strict to the point of cruelty. And Luther maintained, spare the rod and spoil the child. That is true. But beside the rod, keep an apple to give him when he has done well. 
because we all need encouragement to balance out those times whenever we disappoint or fail. Benjamin West recalls how it is that he became a world-famous painter. One day his mother left him in charge of his little sister, Sally. And when she left, the two of them found some paint jars. And so Benjamin decided to paint this picture of his sister, Sally. And of course, two of them being young, the paint got all over the place, all over the floor. And whenever his mom returned home, obviously she was annoyed by this paint all over the place. But she resisted the urge to rebuke him. Instead, she picked up the portrait and said, why, this is Sally. And then she kissed him on the forehead. And later on in life, when West was asked, how is it it became a painter? He said, my mom's kiss made me a painter. You see, encouragement can often accomplish far more than rebuke, especially when our children, all they ever hear from us is this continual lectures and scolding and criticism. So fathers, mothers, do not be harsh. Do not provoke your children to anger. Rather, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the very first thing we must notice is that Paul does not say, go to the other extreme. He doesn't say, be gentle with your children. Let them get away with whatever they want, because it can lead to at least as many bad outcomes as if we were harsh with them. We must never forget that children are born with a bent towards sin, rebellion, rejecting all manner of authority. So they must be taught otherwise. They must learn that sin has consequences, that sin leaves scars. And even though we have a loving Heavenly Father, all sin must be atoned for. And this is one of the most important lessons we'll ever teach our children with regard to their relationship with Christ. Because you see, our God is a just God. So He simply cannot just forget our sin outright. It has to be paid for. And that's why God loved us so much that He sent His one and only Son to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty that we should have paid. And it's so critical for children to understand this. They have to understand there's costs associated with disobedience. It's vital for their salvation. So being friends with your kids or allowing them to decide what's best. It's simply not an option for us. It's why we're in the mess that we're in as a society. We have abandoned this call to discipline. We have gone to the absolute other end of extreme. And Paul says this, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And this is that balance we're talking about, the middle ground along our spectrum up here. It's so important then that we understand what is actually meant by this phrase discipline and instruction because I don't think it's what most of us call to mind whenever we hear these words. First, in the original language, the word discipline means to cultivate the inner being by correcting mistakes and curbing passions. That's really good, isn't it? Again, I don't think that's what we typically think of when we hear this word discipline. So hold that thought. Second, in the original language, the word instruction means admonishing and exhorting to increase virtue or the understanding of truth. So when you take these two together, parents are ultimately charged with shaping a child's will, their inner being, so that it comes in line with truth, all things that are of the Lord. That's the focus of discipline. It's not an excuse 
to work out your stress and your frustrations on your kids. It's to be calculated, focused on cultivating the will of a child such that they begin to pursue truth. Because they'll always have this bent in their will that's predisposed towards sin. And that's why the objectives of discipline are to correct mistakes and to curb passions. How? With instruction that both admonishes and exhorts, so it rebukes and encourages, such that the child's will stands firmly against mistakes and sinful passions in the future. So you see, it's a balance of both admonishing on the harsh end and exhorting on the gentle end. That is Paul's teaching here. So I want to close with a scenario that I found while I was researching this. It's from gotquestions.org. It's a website many of you I know are working through as you are training with these pillars. And I've adapted it a little bit. But in the context of 2024, it seems to capture what Paul means in the first part of his teaching here. When he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. So we're not to do this. The dad starts out. Go clean your room or you're grounded for six months. To which the child responds, well, it's my room and I'm fine with how it looks. The dad abruptly shouts, you will not talk back to me as he backhands the child across the face. Now you're grounded for a year and I'm taking your cell phone. As the child fights back some tears, but I just cleaned my room last week. Mom said it was fine. Dad replies, well, I'm not, Mom, and I say clean it again now. Give me your cell phone as he yanks it away. You won't be needing this for a long time. And again, I realize the reaction to this particular scenario can be all over the place. Someone here will say, that's nothing. You should have seen what my parents would have done in a situation like that. Others will say, this is an abomination, and that father needs to haul it off to jail. I'm going to resist taking a position because... Your parents, you have to make your decision. There's all sorts of circumstances surrounding these things. It's on you. That's why this responsibility is immense. But I do think Paul would say, yeah, this is what I mean. This is a good example here. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Initially grounded for six months. That's a pretty long time. Then a whole year. Okay, that's crazy. A backhand across the face. Certainly going to leave a mark. A lot of explanation there. Mom and dad, not on the same page. And that may actually be the worst part of all. That's a mess when mom and dad are sending conflicting signals to the children. Ripping the cell phone out of the child's hand, that's clearly a hostile act. I think we'd all have to conclude this is an engagement that will no doubt provoke the child to anger. It's most likely the result of a dad who's had a bad day and he's taking out his stress on his child. Now let's check out the same scenario, but following the second half of Paul's teaching, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In this case, the dad says, your room looked pretty messy when I passed by it a moment ago. When's the last time you cleaned it? The child responds, Saturday. Mom said it was fine. Dad says, it might have been fine on Saturday, but it looks like you've been having a lot of fun since then. How about you go pick it up again, and I'll check it before we go out for pizza. The child says, I don't see why I have to clean it again when I just cleaned it. The dad says, because I'm your dad and I love you. And it's my job to train you to be responsible with all God has given you. 
It won't take you but a few minutes. Come on, I'll time you. Ready? Go. Do you see how this engagement is far more likely to lead to voluntary obedience in the future? There's this nice mix of admonishment and encouragement. The dad is not backing down. That room is going to get clean. No pizza until then. Dad and mom are not at odds because it somehow became messy since mom last checked it out. There's encouragement. The reason it's a mess is presumably because the child had some fun. When the child pushes back, the dad reminds him, I'm your dad. I'm just doing my job, and I love you. God has given you this room, and you need to take care of it. The dad realizes it seems like a burden to the child, so he points out, it's only going to take you a few minutes. In fact, let's time it so that the child has something to work towards, right? But also, so the child sees in the future, it actually doesn't take that long to clean up your room. So important that we think through how it is we're instructing. But do you see how the dad turns lemons into lemonade here? This is a wise, this is a skilled, and a God-honoring dad. And again, as we look at these different scenarios, many of us here who are parents, we can replay many times where we've screwed this up. But this is the great story here. We've got a Bible that tells us about these two gifts, forgiveness and repentance. And we get to exercise those. So as parents, when we beat ourselves up over teachings like this, it's so important that we exercise those gifts because repentance means turning to. It's changing the direction in which we were parenting and moving toward a different direction. And that's the call that every one of us can respond to in the middle voice. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing to us as he makes us more holy, as we walk down that narrow path towards that narrow gate. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. Sometimes it's hard to confront the truth. As parents, we can so easily become frustrated and lose sight of the immense responsibility you have given us with the gifts of children in our lives. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you seeking a healthy balance of admonishment and encouragement so that our children might live lives of obedience to all those you have placed in authority over them, but especially you, Lord. We ask, seek, and knock for your help and the strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.